Not so. Let's have a quiet session. Find a comfortable position. So just one piece of mail uh, waiting for me, one that I brought with me. Person here, I think it's anonymous, which is fine. Uh, the anonymous person says, I'm getting a little bit anxious about the idea of coming back to the casino of samsara. I don't want to bet anymore. Well, the casino of samsara is wherever you are. That is, all this, this does, especially today, really does appear like a pure land. It's been quite extraordinary, hasn't it? Uh, nevertheless, if we bring our samsara to it, then there it is. Wherever we are, there's our samsara. Although it is certainly true that there are environments that are much more reinforcing of samsaric tendencies, the status quo of mental afflictions and so forth, this place doesn't reinforce them. Very little to encourage us to have craving, hostility and so forth. Other environments do. So, of course, I do understand the question. And the person here asked me whether I'd like to talk of the importance of refuge in the ethics and ethics in the, li in the way of life. Ethics in the way of life. Sure. Even if um, there are individuals here who, you know, after, you, after this retreat's ever over, uh, just stop meditating altogether. Don't meditate for a moment, but lead a highly ethical way of life. Really go out of their way to avoid injuring anyone, any sentient being, and seeking to live a benevolent way of life, a life of service. I have no regrets. Good. It's a meaningful life. It's good. Meditation can make it better, but ethics without meditation, still, you really have a foundation. Meditation with no ethics, may as well get a massage. You may as well get a massage, but no disrespect to massage people. <laughs> I like massages. <laughs> so, but, so there it is, ethics. And the refuge, the refuge, I'll tell you a story, some of you, probably many of you have heard, but it's always worth telling again. When Ananda, the attendant of the Buddha, for about the last 25 years of his life, I think it was, um, commented, I don't remember what the I don't know what, what the actual situation was to which that aroused this response, but Ananda turned to the Buddha and said, "Lord, it seems like having spiritual friends is half the practice." And the Buddha said, "Say not so, say not so, Ananda. Having spiritual friends is the whole of the practice." awful lot of truth in that. And so wherever you're going from here, if you have spiritual friends that you can rely upon, to whom you can offer your own fr friendship, from whom you can receive their friendship, their support, um, especially in the modern world, where there's just a lot of, you know, not dharma, put it that way. Uh, if you can have friends who are truly spiritual friends, it's a tremendous boon. If you can have access to a teacher, a qualified teacher, very good. But spiritual friends are enormously important. And again, this word, I think, has quite a precise meaning to it. <coughs> we have different types of friends. Uh, years ago, I, I played tennis once a week, and there was one fellow I knew. As far as I know, the only thing that we had common in terms of really explicit interest was we played tennis. So we played tennis once a week, and it was a good tennis friend. We enjoyed playing tennis each other. I said, bye-bye. I didn't never learn, learn, never learn much about him, but we played tennis. So that was the tennis friend. 
And so we have golf friends and we have various types of friends. And then there are spiritual friends, and spiritual friends is a very it's a specific, it is friendship, it is mutual. And a spiritual friend is one who is there to assist you in your spiritual practice. What does that mean? To help you find genuine happiness and alleviate, hopefully eventually eradicate the true causes of suffering. So that's what a spiritual friend is. And so I think we are all spiritual friends here. I've, I've, I've sensed a lot of support amongst all of us here. So we are mutually spiritual friends. And then in, oh, the Galupa tradition, the Sakya tradition especially, they use the word Gevishenye, Gevishenye, which means spiritual friend, Kalyanamitra in, Sans in Sanskrit. Uh, and they shorten that from Gevishenye to Geshe, and it becomes a title. It becomes like professor of Buddhism. So Geshe Ngavantaige, Geshe Rapten, and so forth. But it's just a, such a lovely epithet. I mean, I like professor too, one who professes. One who professes what he or she believes to be true and helpful. But Gewishinian, Geshe, spiritual friend. So you, Geshe Rapten, strove diligently, just to take one example, for 24 years from the age of 19 until he, fi uh, he passed his final exams, became number one Geshe for his year, uh, and then he earned the title spiritual friend. So it's quite nice. It's a pretty nice title after 24 years of very, very intensive training. So that's that. Wherever you're going from, whether it's to you know, whatever climate, altitude, city, countryside, or what have you, it's all samsara. It's all samsara. But if you have some friends that you can rely upon, and you know you can share this, you, this you can share. Because there are a lot of people, I mean, I, I, I enjoy speaking for my faith. Not always, I mean, I, I, I will do a lot more lecturing in very secular environments, and I've lectured at MIT and Caltech and the Instit Technological Institute in Monterey and a similar one in Italy and, and another one in Brazil and so forth. I, that's fine. That's fine. I don't speak so much from faith there. I, you know, I put on my, don my armor, <laughs> you know, and then I, I do, do my shtick. But um, when you're with spiritual friends who share a similar worldview, then you don't always say, according to Buddhism, you don't always have to put that caveat in. According to Buddhism, according to Mahayana Buddhism, according to the Nyingma tradition, blah, 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 blah. You can just say, you know, this is what I understand. This is, this is my belief. Yeah. And you don't try to defend it because you know you're not going to be attacked. And that doesn't mean everybody has to agree with you, but you don't always have to hedge it. And frankly, also, you know, the materialists, they don't hedge. They don't hedge. They don't say, according to the materialistic worldview, you know, they don't do that at all. They just say, and this is what we say, you know. We biologists, we neuroscientists, and so forth. Well, good. If they can speak of that confidence, why can't we? There's faith-based, too. <laughs> they just have faith in different people, and that's their right. So finding people that you can just open your heart to, talk about practice, Share experiences, help each other. Very, very helpful. Very, very helpful. Either that or live in solitude. Just going to be a yogi. Then you, if you've become friend with yourself, then you always have good companionship. <laughs> then, oh, now here's a really heavy, du heavy duty one. It's a trick question, I can tell, too. This is really a trick question. I, I'm on my guard. When somebody throws me a quick question, ah, hey! Do you think once in a while I can drink a beer? Or, <laughs> or maybe two beers, but without getting drunk and unconscious. 
does that affect my little attention? Two beers and one little attention. I wonder who's going to win. <laughs> Do you think it's better to avoid alcohol? Well, this is a trick question. I, I don't know if it's obvious how tricky it is. Because he didn't say how big the beers are. Two beers, you know, the first one is one gallon. The second one's one, but just two beers, you know, two kegs. <laughs> so, sure, um, the answer is, uh, assuming you have not taken precepts. Precepts, then, you have, if you've taken five precepts, you don't touch any alcohol at all. Monk goes without saying, zero, absolute nothing. If you're a layperson, you have no precept against taking alcohol. Um, I think it would be just fine to take like a thimble. <laughs> One beer, even two beers. It's fine. Or if you're really a heavy drinker, a schnapps glass. You know? Schnapps, you know. Yeah, that's it, that's right. Two schnapps. And boy, that, that was quick. <laughs> Hardly even feel the buzz. Um, I've had some really good non-alcoholic beers. Uh, Klaus has them. Klaus, Klaus, uh, has, Klaus is German. Germans know a lot about beers. At least some of them do. He's one of them. He's got a really good non-alcoholic beer. I drank a number of them there, and I checked, because I do have a precept. I have all five precepts. And I said, does this have like 2% or 1%? He said, no, it's zero alcohol. It's, you can see on the none. Said, oh, OK, try it. It's actually quite good, quite good. So if you can have beer, why not have a non-alcoholic beer? Why not? Get a good one, though. Because I was on an airplane recently. It was a German airplane. It was Lufthansa. And, and I, I asked, do you have a non-alcoholic beer? And they brought out one. It wasn't any good at all. <laughs> all righty. So there's the, beer, there's the beer diet. There's the beer discourse. Oh, Lasso. So maybe we can just switch back and forth. Here are a number of questions from one person. Um, maybe just, why not just leave it anonymous, but there's nothing terribly personal about it. So I'll answer one, and then if there's anything out with you all here, live, we'll go to live. We can bounce back and forth. Um, is there any, any advice to be able to adapt myself to wake around 3 a.m.? Yeah. Um, I w that, that's exactly when I woke up this morning. 3 a.m., almost on the button. And... I, I, have, I tend to watch my body very, fairly carefully, um, really quite carefully, to see whether it, it needs any more sleep, the body mind needs any more sleep. This morning, even though I didn't get to bed as early as I normally do, because I was doing some editing, um, woke up at 3 o'clock, I saw the mind, this mind's not going back to sleep. <laughs> this mind is, I, I found the phrase, bright-eyed and bushy-tailed, you know? And so then I started meditating. Um, but if you do find normally... And I never, I, especially in retreat, I never set an alarm, and I'm very happy not to. So a couple of days ago, I slept until 5.30. It was quite shocking, quite shocking. Um, but 3 o'clock, so if you find that you commonly are waking up 3 o'clock, really quite early, 3, 3, 3, 3.30, something like that, or even a bit later, uh, what I would suggest is, yeah, go to bed early. Go to bed early. Uh, you might even get, in, in, get into bed as early as, let's say, even 8 o'clock even if you're not very tired. Get into bed, lights out, go into the supine position, and full-on practice shamatha. Practice shamatha in the supine position, you know, the whole thing. Do it any, any of the three ways, full body, abdomen, at the apertures of the nostrils, and practice 
full-fledged, I mean, there's real shamatha practice. Do the balancing act. Don't lose clarity, deepen relaxation, and so forth. And then, as you're in that posture, lights out, everything, the, the day is finished. When you find, and, and as you really attend closely, you might find it's really almost like the sun setting. The sun setting, 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 it's set. It's now beneath the horizon. And you know when that happens. Anybody's watching, you can tell, unless it's heavily overcast. So you may find at some point, just within just a few minutes, ah, the sun of clarity just set. And that's probably because I need some sleep. And then mentally, click your fingers. You don't need to do it, obviously, in, in real life with your finger finger. But then say, okay, finished. And then I would overall suggest that you change your posture, just so you don't mush meditation with falling asleep. So if you do that for the last hour or so, or even an hour and a half, you know, totally comfortable, supine position, um, that's a very nice way to end the day. And then, generally speaking, if you can balance your sleep, if you're in, in a yogi situation, now I, I know perfectly well when we're out in the rest of the world, um, the illusory world, unlike the real world here, um, that there are often demands on our time that we simply cannot, it's just not feasible uh, to center our sleep around midnight. Especially um, dinner, dinner invitations. Uh, frankly, I kind of dread them myself because that means I have to have a big meal or else I'm eating a little tiny meal, everybody else is eating three or four times as much and a little bit awkward. But then it's, it's chump, 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 yak, 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 chump, 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 yak, 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 yak. So you can't really enjoy the food, you can't really enjoy the conversation, and you generally eat more than you need. And then you're not finished until 10, 10 or 11 o'clock at night. So I, I'm following actually His Holiness. His Holiness really likes to avoid any public event at all in, uh, after, you know, from the evening on. So the evening can be just quiet. And that's the yogi's way. So if, if it's possible, and it certainly is here, if you can center your sleep around midnight, then I think the yogi's old wisdom, and it's probably other people's wisdom too, is you're going to get more benefit from your sleep that is centered around midnight. So if you get in two or three hours before midnight, and then three hours afterwards, that may very well be much more restful than going to bed at 11 o'clock and waking up at 5. Okay? Now, that's an empirical question. It's true or false. So may, if scientists show that there's no truth to that, I will listen to them. Okay? But that is my sense. So that's that. Okay? So that's one question. Anything coming up for practice? Anything on your mind that you would like to express? Bold insights? Going where you've never gone before? Yeah, go ahead. Nicola. Nicola. Hello. So uh, the question is about, in general, about uh, meditating on an outside object and how this relates to my practices. Because outside object like a twig, a stick? Or yeah, a yeah, something like that. You mean actual physical, physical yeah, object? Yeah, yeah. yeah, good, good. Or, or a spot on the wall, something that's not attractive. And, or a spot on the wall? That would be a pretty good example <laughs> of not attractive. <laughs> I'm asking the question because um, as I was trying to uh, know whether I'm clear or not in my meditation, mm -hmm. um, sometimes I, I realize that sometimes when I'm following the breath, uh, there's kind of fall into a haze where yeah. it's kind of there, but so on a level I'm satisfied because I'm, I'm paying attention to it, but I'm also <laughs> not very clear on it. Yeah. And then 
um, when I got out of the meditation, I started tending to something visual. And then I, I noticed that as soon as even the tiniest thoughts start appearing and, and taking my mind away, my, uh, my uh, vision blurs. Vision blurs, ah. And so it's, I guess, more clear of a sign for me. And then I can do something. I can refocus my eyes right. or something. Right. So I was wondering if I could incorporate this as maybe a pre-breath stabilization technique. And uh, maybe you can share your experience with it, and uh, maybe you can provide some guidance on what objects to select. Or sure, sure. Yeah, two things that need two things about that need to be said almost in the same breath. I can't do that, but I will say them adjacent, side by side. Um, the first thing is, and this is from Sonkaba, uh, There's just no way you're going to achieve shamatha, and you didn't say you would, so I'm not refuting you. There's no way you're going to achieve shamatha by looking at some visual object and then developing single-pointed attention on it. You'll never achieve shamatha. You do that for a thousand years. You're, you're locking into the form realm, and it's all piggybacking on the visual perception, so it's going to remain at a very coarse level. And it will for as long as you do it. And frankly, that's going to be true for mantra as well. Mantra, it doesn't matter what mantra is, some extremely esoteric mantra or really mundane mantra, om ah hung, whatever it is, or fi fi fo fam, that one also. You know. That makes it much deeper. Um, focusing on a mantra also won't take you very deep. Because number one, it's, it's in motion. It's in motion and it's coarse. Even if it's, even, even if it's just mental, even if you're not saying anything verbal. So there's Tsongkhaba. He speaks with tremendous authority. So does Padmasambhava. Padmasambhava in the book Natural Liberation, which I translated, when he comes after dealing with all the preliminaries, common preliminaries, uncommon pre preliminaries, Vajrasapta meditation, and so forth, then he comes to shamatha, and he deals with shamatha with a sign, and then shamatha without a sign. Shamatha without, with a sign, so baby steps, kindergarten, shamatha 101, he says, direct your visual attention to a stick, a stone, or a flower. Stick, stone, or a flower. So, so just something that's around. It could be a football, a clock, or a shoestring. It really doesn't matter. But they had more of the sticks, stones, and flowers in Tibet than footballs. And, you know. and so, but he, all he was talking about is something is relatively small that you can place right in front of you, about 45 degree angle down. And then you just focus on it visually. But of course, in doing that, um, this is a shamatha practice. It's not an eye exercise. And so as you were doing, you direct your eyes to it, but you also piggyback your mental awareness upon the visual, and you try to maintain single-pointed attention to it. And he says something like, do that for one day. I haven't memorized it, but whether he said he'd do it for one day or three days, but short time. But it is coarse, but that's what it should be, because the mind that is first venturing into shamatha practice, generally, is coarse. So meet coarse with coarse. When we try to meet coarse, that is, our minds, with something subtle, then that's an, Im an immediate invitation to frustration. And then feeling, oh, I'm, I'm no good meditator, and blah, blah, blah. And so, coarse, coarse, and then that somewhat subdues it. And then, you, and then he takes you step by step to more and more subtle practices until eventually awareness of awareness, the most subtle. And then there he says, now continue practicing until you've settled your mind in its natural state. Okay? So, good practice. Good practice as something very much preliminary, as you were suggesting. So the short answer is, yeah, that's fine. It's good. Okay. Good. Okay. Now we'll do one here. Oh, I have mentioned that bodhisattvas suffer. 
Sure, there's a very famous one cited in the 8,000 verse Prajnaparamita. In Tibetan, I've forgotten his name in Sanskrit, but in Tibetan, Tatu Mu, always crying, always crying. A bodhisattva, always crying. So some of you who have cried when you come and see me, <laughs> right on the great path. <laughs> oh, Tatu Mu in the making. One of the crying ones. Very good, very good. So why was Taktungu crying? Um, always out of compassion for sentient beings. Always out of that. So that's it. I mean, it's just, yeah. And there was one, oh, there was one yogi. I don't know if any, uh, if either, I, I look at you because I know you've, you have really solid background. I'm sure other people do as well, but Glenn and, and Basan. But there was one Tibetan yogi and they say he smiled only, th only three times, and people only saw him for all the t years that they knew him. They, oh, and also, uh, Jacob, I know you have a good background as well. Anybody remember his name? He was one yogi. They said they only saw him smile three times. Yeah. The mouse, yeah. Do you remember the whole story? I, I, I remember, I, I, my, I, I, in the what? Could well be. I heard it from just oral transmission, but in any case, he just saw something so comic that he, you know, cracked a grin. <laughs> you know? Strained his jaw. Black face something? What's that? Is it like dark face something? Could be. But it, the point here is that it, it, is, it was not that he was chronically depressed, that he, you know, he needed some major medication, uh, but that he was so heartfelt aware of the suffering of the world. So, yeah, so, uh, bodhisattvas can suffer, they can suffer... Oh, there's a oh, wonderful story. This is a, 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 myth, a mythopoetic story. It may be literally too, for all I know, but I will present it as a mythopoetic story. It's really quite beautiful, very touching. Um, and that it's, it's the, um, the story of, of Avalokiteshvara as a 10th stage bodhisattva. So very high up there, 10th, 10th stage bodhisattva. And the story goes, some of you may have heard it, it's a beautiful story, uh, that here's this incredibly enlightened, not Buddha, but nevertheless, very highly realized bodhisattva, embodiment of compassion, and, you know, bearing in mind for as long as space remains, for as long as sentient being remains, and so forth. So he's striving for eons, striving for eons to alleviate the suffering of the world, you know, in myriad ways, really rendering service, being of much service as he can. And then after some eons, and then this great bodhisattva then takes stock he takes stock and he looks around in the universe and says, okay, how much suffering is left? Oh. <laughs> and he saw how much suffering was still there after eons of being, you know, serving as a great Arya Bodhisattva and still so much suffering left over. Still so much. And they said he just burst into tears. Burst into tears of just so much sorrow for the myriad ocean of samsara of sentient beings. Burst into tears. One of his tears trickled down, touched the earth, and out of the tear appeared Tara, the feminine manifestation of compassion. And she turned to him, I think it was probably green Tara, the dynamic aspect. And Tara rose from his tear, and she turned to him and said, Do not, how would you say, do not sorrow, I'll help you. And that's the whole story. I love it, I really love it. So, yeah, so even maybe a 10th stage bodhisattva. But now in terms of the classic teachings, um, and I'm going back to classic teachings, as in the teachings of Maitreya, 
in the Abhismalankara and the commentaries there too, it is said that when you actually become a bodhisattva, just on the, so you've actually become a bodhisattva, bodhicitta is arising spontaneously in your mind stream, your mind is bodhicitta, you've achieved the Mahayana path of accumulation, the first of the five paths, sequential paths. So I've been told by my teachers, oh, that from that point on, you don't experience any mental suffering that is self-centered. By inference, clearly, you can still experience suffering for others. We have that from so many stories, lots and lots of evidence. But, oh, poor me, I didn't get this, I wanted that, I'm so disappointed, blah, blah, blah. Self-centered mental suffering just doesn't happen anymore. You're, you're finished with it. That'd be kind of nice relief. But for a person, now this is just the first of the five paths, path of accumulation, preparation, path of seeing, path of meditation, path of no more training. So there you are on the, on the bottom rung of the, the ladder track to tenure in Buddhism, uh, in Buddhahood. Um, on that level, can you ex still experience physical pain that really gets to you? I mean, really gets to you. The answer is yes. The answer is yes. I, was ju I just checked online a few days ago um, see what was on, on, online uh, in terms of Yang Tang Rinpoche, the one I mentioned. And I'll be giving these teachings. They changed the date. Now what is it? I think it starts about December 1st, the empowerments you'll be giving in the San Francisco Bay Area until something like February 19th. It's about two and a half months. And in any case, I just checked. I was just kind of curious to see if I could learn a little bit more about his past. Um, and I did. Uh, there was a detail there that I either didn't know or I knew, but I forgot. And that is, this Lama was actually born in Sikkim. Born in Sikkim. Yang Tang is a family, family name from, from Western Sikkim. Uh, but he was identified like Tomo Geshe Rinpoche, who was a great Galupa Geshe, who was also his incarnation was born in Sikkim. Uh, these two great Tibetan Lamas in their incarnations uh, were born in Sikkim. I knew the Tomogishi Rinpoche uh, that was born in Sikkim. He's passed away now. Yantra uh, Rinpoche is happily still alive. But so he was born there, identified as a tuku, really quite an extraordinary, very high-level tuku, of the same monastery as my own teacher, Gyatra Rinpoche, from Domang, Domang Monastery up in Ando, in Golo. Uh, so he was identified, and then he was brought back to his monastery a long way away, and then he received all of his training as a tuku. And then during the Chinese, inva Chinese Communist invasion of Tibet, the genocide that took place there, he fled, but he didn't get away. They caught him. And he spent 22 years in concentration camp. I've known a number of lamas, including, including Baldwin Gyatso and others. He spent 33 years. And I've known others as well who went through that. Um, it, it staggers the imagination in a way you don't want to have your imagination staggered, the kind of suffering that was inflicted in those places. And it was basically, it was inflicted because they were lamas, that was it. Not a crime, not anything else, you're a lama, oh, you're a tuku, are you? Oh, well, this is like, you know, heinous crime. He spent 22 years, 22 years in concentration camp. And he said that during those time, during, during that 22 years, now bear in mind, if you can, Imagine imagining it. During those 22 years, in the midst of it, during the first year, and the 10th year, and the 15th, and the 20th year, you never know, where, when the, you never know whether you're ever going to get out in this lifetime. You have no way of knowing. 
because you're not there for any just reason anyway. So you have no idea whether this is going to be, this is your home for the rest of your life. You have no idea. It's hard to imagine. That was the reality. He made this comment, and you can check it if you just Google Yangtan Rinpoche. He said, during those 20 years, 22 years in prison, my mind was far more peaceful than most people who lived outside of prison. So, that's something worth striving for. So that's for mental suffering. And then, according to the classic teachings, again going right back to the Abhisayama Alankara, jewel ornament for manifest realization, higher realization. Um, when you become Arya Bodhisattva, so you are a Bodhisattva, your bodhicitta is deepened, deepened, deepened as you progress along the path of accumulation, along the, oh, the four stages of the path of preparation, and you achieve the path of seeing, you achieve the first Bodhisattva Bhumi, or ground. From that point, you're an Arya Bodhisattva. So from that point, you don't experience physical pain like ordinary sentient beings. The closest we can really imagine would be and, and does this mean you have a general anesthetic? No, you can get a general anesthetic without ever achieving bodhicitta. You know, I'm sure somebody could probably in, invent one that you give to people that they just walk around and never feel anything. It's not that. It's nothing ridiculous like that. Uh, but I think the closest we could imagine what that might be like, and it's only, a, it's only an analogy, uh, and I think I mentioned it before, but that would be to be in the midst of a, a gloriously lucid dream not, I think, I more or less kind of think this is a dream, but man, is this ever a dream? And you're flying and walking through walls and just totally digging, being in a lucid dream and totally knowing that it's a lucid dream and really fathoming the nature of dream reality. And in the midst of that, um, then being eaten by a crocodile or cut in half with a chainsaw or something like that. Okay, now, you really, under, you really know there's not one atom in that dream. You know that there are no internal organs in your body. It's just an appearance. So somebody brings out a chainsaw that is also a dream chainsaw and comes over to your dream body and says, I'm going to saw you in half. <laughs> you start, what do you do? You start chuckling. <laughs> what <do> you, <laughs> oh, really? Oh, I'm scared. This is a dream. Okay, if you want to sop me a half, okay, go for it. If, are you bored? What, what was the motivation there? But where? Go ahead. Whatever. Want to start here? You know, it would be like that. I mean, that's why it is said that an Arya Bodhisattva can give away limbs as if they were vegetables. And it's also said, and this will be the last point on this, that uh, until you're an Arya Bodhisattva. Be very reserved about giving away your limbs. <laughs> they, won't grow, they won't grow back. <laughs> We're not lizards, you know, and just have, have a little tail grow right back again when it crops out. So you want to be quite reserved about giving away your life or sacrificing limbs. But once you're an Arya Bodhisattva, then you have a free pass. Then you can give away your limbs when anybody asks. So that's that. And so, yeah, so mental suffering, self-centered mental suffering, terminated when you become a bodhisattva, physical suffering that really gets you in its grip, terminated when you're an Arya bodhisattva. When are you free from suffering? When are you free from suffering? Um, 
Well, mental suffering, so mental suffering, I've told you. Um, even an arhat, it's said that an arhat's degree of purity in terms of freedom from mental afflictions is the same as that as an eighth stage Arya Bodhisattva. That is, even along the Arya Bodhisattva path, you're not free of mental afflictions, klesha, klesha avarana, until you've come to the pure bhumis, which is eight, nine, ten. Until then, you still have subtle mental affliction to work on, but that's on the wisdom side. On the skillful mean side, your bodhicitta is just unbelievable. It's completely incomparable to, to the motivation, the degree of compassion, and so forth of an arhat. Um, so for an arhat, so as a person who's come to the culmination of the shravakayana, the pursuit of one's own liberation, such a person experiences no, men, no mental suffering at all. I mean, nothing. Not for other people, not for sentient beings, not for himself, herself, not at all. It doesn't mean that there's no compassion. It just means there is no suffering. Powerful aspiration? Could well be. I've been, but I, especially the last several days, I've been, the last thing I do before going to bed is to read this commentary on the Dhammapada. And there are many, many stories in the, in the Pali Canon of a person who does very little practice and then, boom, achieves, becomes arhat. You don't see a whole sequence. You know, these are direct disciples of the Buddha, so they are coming extremely primed. And they'll do a little bit of practice and, boom, they're, they're, they're finished. You know. When Shariputra, Shariputra and Moggallana, I'll say it in Sanskrit, Shariputra and Madhgayayana Putra, they were friends from youth. And then they, they set out, they, they followed an agnostic by the name of, what was his name, Sanjaya, something like that. They followed him, but they just found his teachings unsatisfying. He's an agnostic, so he didn't know what he's talking about. So why should he be satisfied by following an agnostic teacher? I mean, really, you can be agnostic before you ever meet a teacher. That's why you're looking for a teacher, because you're agnostic. So blind leading the blind. Um, so they were not satisfied, and so the two of them split up. They're bosom buddies, they're childhood buddies, same village. But they both had this passionate longing to achieve enlightenment, to achieve liberation. And so they both made a, a pact with each other, agreement, that we're going to split up because we'll cover more territory, trying to find some enlightened teacher who can really bring us to liberation. But if, so let's imagine it's Carlos and me. Carlos, if you find, it, if you find such a teacher, then let me know pronto. And if I find the teacher, then I'll let you know pronto. That'll be my first thing. As soon as I found such a teacher, I'll let you know. Count on it. We're, we're buddies. Like that. And so it was Shariputra. He was out, you know, just looking. And he saw, he was just out walking, and he saw a monk. Uh, his name was Asaji. If, if I remember correctly, I think he was one of the five original disciples of the Buddha. Arhat. And Asaji was known for his just exquisite presence, his deportment, the calm, the serenity, the presence that he carried with him wherever he went. And he was simply walking along, but there was just, in his whole presence, something that was just incredibly compelling to Shariputra. So he went over to him, and he accosted him respectably, res uh, res respectfully, and said, um, with whom have you gone forth? That is, what's brought you to the path? Who is your teacher? What is your teaching? What is the teaching you're following? And Asaji responded, I am very young in the Dharma, even though he's an arhat. He said, I'm very young in the Dharma, so I can't really say much. 
that in Sanskrit he said, Ye dharma hetu prabhava hetun desham tatakado hyabata dechanchayo niroda evam vadi mahasramane. And that is the causes of causal originated things and the cause of the sensation, of, and the cause also of their cessation. It's been taught by the sage. So the causes of those causally originated things and the cause of the cessation, thus, thus is the teaching, that is the teaching of the great sage, the great ascetic, referring to the Buddha. It's four lines, four lines. Shariputra heard the first two lines and realized nirvana. So he didn't really need the second two lines. That is, he became sotopan. He became a stream enterer. And then he practiced. So he, so he found it. He, he, he realized nirvana. He's still a stream enterer, so he needs to practice a bit more to become a once-returner, non-returner, and then become an arhat. But he knew he'd found it. Doubt was gone. So he sought out his old buddy, Madhgalyayana. And he said, I, I found this monk, and this is what he said. Ye dharma hetu prabhava hetun deshan tatakoto hyapata deshan sheo nerode evam vadimashramaneyasvaha. The tatakata has taught the cause of causally originated things and the cause of the cessation as well. Thus, it's the teaching of the great sage. And by the time he'd finished the first two of the four, four lines, Magayana achieved re entry as well. All right. And then now my, my memory is a little bit hazy. But then they both went on. Then they sought out the Buddha. They received direct teaching from the Buddha. And one took one week, and the other one took two weeks to become arhat. Okay? Which is, and, and some took shorter time than that. But the point is that not all these arhats had the same degree of compassion. Some had very deep compassion. Some had incredible powers, like Maltayayana, Buddha. Some had great wisdom, like Shariputra and so forth. Some had great presence, like Asaji, and so forth. Um, but there was one quite interesting story. It was a seeker, and he sought out teachings. I think he re received them directly from the Buddha. He received the teachings, and it was almost as fast as Bahia. It was really fast. The Buddha gave him the teachings, and really, almost like within no time at all, he became an arhat. But he already, it must have been previous motivation, he achieved arhat, and he knew, basically, as soon as he came arhat, he wanted out. So I'll tell you the story. Whatever I say, if you want to believe it literally, not believe it, be perplexed, be skeptical, it's fine, I don't care. But this is what the story says. He achieved arhatship very, very rapidly. And then he just rose up into the air. He allowed his body just to burst into flame. And only very fine residue came down. And that's how he ended his life. Achieved nirvana, and then rose seven leagues up in the sky or something like that. And then fire just, he meditated on the fire kasina, the fire emblem, the fire element. Meditated on that, absorbed his mind into it, and so his body just went supernova. And then just uh, relics came down. And the Buddha laid a cloth down to get the relics, because he, he saw it was coming. The relics came down, and that's how he checked out. So quite a wide variety. So where was all that going? No suffering for the arhat. No mental suffering, no physical suffering. Some have tremendous compassion. Some, no anger, but maybe not so much compassion. A lot of variety there, but no suffering at all. And physical, 
physical suffering experienced very differently like the, Arya, like the Arya Bodhisattva. So I just read the story of Malgayayana or Moggallanaputta in Pali. I knew the story before, but I just read it again and got a bit more detail. It was interesting. Um, this was the disciple of the Buddha. He's like his, his left, the one who's depicted on his left, Moggallanaputta, or Malgayayana on his right, Shariputra. Shariputra for wisdom, and Malgayayana for incredible cities, unbelievable cities, clairvoyance, more so than any of the, of, the, of the other disciples. The story goes that after the Buddha had been teaching for a long time and both of his disciples were already quite old, the Buddha himself was quite old, <coughs> there was one group of kind of a rival sect. It was, it was one of the earliest instances of really religious sectarianism, militant sectarianism that I've read in any language. And this was some group, they just called them naked ascetics, so it didn't even pinpoint, oh, they're this sect, that sect, but a non-Buddha sect. And uh, they were just jealous. They were just jealous uh, of how much acclaim and honor and offerings and so forth were being made to the Buddha and his sangha, his ordained monks. And they got together, they just couldn't stand it. They were envious, just like how envious I am of how handsome he has. You know. And so they tried to, uh, so they thought about, what can we do, you know? We're getting all the acclaim over there. People are ignoring us. You know, we're, we're naked. I mean, they should look at us. <laughs> and so they decided that they, they, they came up with an, the, the conclusion why the Buddha's following had so much, so much respect and all of that. And that was that Putra was really quite unreserved. He was not at all reticent in, in displaying his extraordinary powers. He did it a lot. And this rival group, they figured, well, this is what really impresses people. If you can show paranormal abilities, that really catches people's attention. And then they think, oh, you must really know something. So that's why. It's because of that disciple of the Buddha. He keeps on showing off these powers, and everybody gets totally blown away, and then they give him lots of stuff. So bump him off, kill him, and then things will calm down, and we'll have more chance, and we can show everybody how naked we are. And so what they did was, these 500, so the story goes, they actually they, they sought out a group of um, thugs. Thugs. And they said, you know, uh, we'd like to have you guys, we'd like to have you, we want to put out a contract on Magalayana. Would you be willing to accept the contract? Bump him off. Kill him. And then we won't have to have that, you know, so much respect won't go to the Buddhist followers. And they said, sure, you betcha. They were thugs. They were hired killers. So they accepted it. And this whole group then, the story goes, um, everybody knew where Malgalayana was living, so they sought him out. But Malgalayana, having extraordinary powers, could see them coming from you know, a mile off. And he knew what their intention was. They were, they were coming to kill him. So he just slipped out the keyhole, disappeared. So when they came, oh, empty hut, strange. Sure he, sure he is there. And then they left, and he just slipped right back in again. Then they came a second time to kill him. And this time he slipped out another little hole in the building, which is gone. And, ah, oh, crap, I still can't kill him. So they went back home. And then he went back, and he reappeared in his hut. And then he used his own mental powers to see, what's up with this? Why do they want to kill me? Um, he, hadn't done any, he hadn't harmed anybody. And then he saw, ah, 
there's still a bit of karma that has to ripen. And this is the way I need to die. This is the way I'm going to die. That karma has to ripen. He's an arhat. But an arhat still isn't free of past life karma. And I can slip through the keyhole for as, you know, for as long as I like, but still, this is the way I'm going to die, so I may as well get it over with. So the third time, these thugs came, and he just waited for them. Here's a man with incredible super, supernormal abilities. You know, he could have toasted them. He just waited for them. And they came in with good old-fashioned clubs, and they just beat him to a pulp. Just smashed him. Smashed him. Absolute mugging, third-degree absolute mugging. They just pulverized him. And then they, they left him for dead. They took off. Mission accomplished. They'd fulfilled the contract. He was right on just the cusp of being alive. Barely, barely. And he reformed his body, just using his mental powers. His body is just, it's mush. But he used his mental powers just to reform his body and then transported this body to the Buddha to pay his final respects. I just read this a couple of days ago. I, I found it quite moving. So I went before the Buddha, basically told him, my time is up. Very simple story. Um, just said I wanted to pay my last respects. This is a very close student, a deeply admired student, that is a student, disciple of the Buddha, tremendously admired by the Buddha. It wasn't just he had a lot of powers. He was just a spectacular student, disciple, realized being. And the Buddha said, I understand. I don't know why such strong emotion is coming up. It's a simple story. But there it is. Um, but the Buddha said to his disciple, before you go, teach me Dharma. Mogalama taught him Dharma. And the Buddha addressed his other disciples with him 
And he said, you'll never see a disciple like this again. And he was gone. And his students were quite perplexed at this. How could such a great being, how could he die in such an awful way? And this is all, of course, tangential to the issue of suffering. Did he suffer somewhat? Sure, but in almost an unimaginable way. Again, take as a lucid dream as the closest analogy. But the disciples asked the Buddha, how, how could this be? That such a noble disciple, such a pure soul, never harmed a being and done nothing wrong. How could he come to such an end? And the Buddha said, you're wrong to think that he never did anything wrong. He did do something wrong. Long, 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 long time ago. Many, many lifetimes in the past. You want the whole story? May as well. I made a long story already. <laughs> there was a young man who was very devoted to his parents. And he took care of them, just devoted his life to taking care of them. And his parents, you know, he's, he's an adult. And his parents said, oh, you should take a wife. You take a wife. He said, I don't need a wife. I, I'm just happy to take care of you. You know, happy to take care of you. Oh, no, no, take a wife. Take a wife. So they chose a wife for him. And the wife moved in. She wasn't such a great choice. Um, because she was just a com complainer. And she was a complainer. One of just really negative persons. And she just couldn't stand being in the same house with her husband's parents. And so she would clutter up the whole place and then wail to her husband, Ah, oh, your parents, they're pigs. They leave the whole place in the dump. I can't stand living with them. They live, everything's sloppy. I always have to clean, my, clean up after them. Where she had up, she'd made the mess herself. And so she was just making his life unbearable. And so this young man, young man then, um, told his parents, I think, you know, this isn't working. And I'm going to need to take you to another place so that we don't have this conflict within the house. And so, so they said, well, whatever's needed. And so he took them out into the forest. He led them out in the forest, and then he disappeared. And then while he was out in the forest, he made noises as if he were a, a thug, a bandit pretending as he was a bandit. And it was dark, they couldn't see, and suddenly they didn't know where their son was, and they hear this kind of like really threatening sounds of bandits out in the forest, and he's, he's doing all this kind of play acting. And then he comes to them, and he beat them to death. His own parents. He beat them to death. And while he's beating them to death, his parents are calling out, not knowing where their son is, says, son, escape, escape, we're being, we're being attacked, but save yourself. Save yourself while their own son is killing them. And he beat them to a pulp, beat them to death. And the Buddha said, it's the ripening of that karma. Killed his own parents. And he got beaten to death in the same way. So karma is one of those very mysterious things. Olaso, that was a lot of storytelling. Something simple, the Guru Rinpoche mantra of Vajra, uh, the Padmasambhava, in Tibetan pronunciation, Om Ahum Benzo Guru Bema Siddhi Hum, but I mention Benza Sato, 
the Tibetan pronunciation came for not being able to say Vajrasattva. It's true, you, you can't say Vajrasattva in Tibetan. They don't have a Va sound, they don't have Jra sound, and they don't have a Tva sound. So that's three syllables out of three syllables. You don't, you don't, <laughs> that's kind of a low batting average. So Vajra, Benza, Sattva, Sato, Benza, Sato. Sounds much more Japanese to me. Sounds kind of samurai. <laughs> but in any case, yes, so, so should the, um, so, so is this the same case, should it be Oma Hung Vajra Guru, um, Padma Siddhi Hung, Padma Siddhi Hung. Yeah, because the Tibetans also, when, when you see Padma, in the Tibetan pronunciation, if you have Pa, and then it afterwards it goes into an automatic E sound, so it becomes Pema instead of Padma. The Tibetans can say Padma, but they don't. They follow their own pronunciation rules, and so they turn Padma into Pema. And so, ben, uh, Benzo Guru Pema instead of Vajra Guru Padma. And so, should the, if you want to recite this, presumably as Padma Sambhava himself would have heard, is Om Ahung Vajra Guru Padma Siddhi Hung, that would be Sanskrit. So, if you say that in Sanskrit, who knows, you might really perk up Padma Sambhava's ears, like somebody's finally getting my name right. <laughs> Somebody's reciting who's not Tibetan. <laughs> Good. <laughs> so I laugh because this is really low stakes. Not everything is high stakes, and this is very low stakes. So His Holiness was asked this decades ago, maybe three decades ago, for the Vadrasattva Mantra. If you recite that Tibetan style, it's very, very different. All the way across, it's very different in the Tibetan pronunciation from the Sanskrit. Very, very different. Um, and Omanipe Mehum. Well, it's Om Mani Padme Hum. And so His Holiness was asked, does it really make any difference? You know, Westerners, I mean, Tibetans, just recite it your own way. Well, don't worry about it. It's worked for a thousand years. But Westerners coming in, do we really need, you know, with a, with a Spanish accent of Tibetan accent of Sanskrit and then a, a Finnish accent of a, Span of a Tibetan accent of, you know, it's going to be all these variations of Tibetan accents with the, you know, multilinguicity of the globe. Uh, is it important to recite with Tibetan pronunciation? Or can we go back to what we understand the Sanskrit pronunciation was? And His Holiness said, it doesn't matter. <laughs> Whatever feels right. Whatever feels right. Have faith in it. Practice it. See whether it's beneficial. Good. Good. Any questions from the floor? We have a few minutes left. Questions or comments, insights? But the stories from the Pali Canon are good, aren't they? I really find them very moving. Really moving. So many of them. Very human. Very human. Yes? Position Positions of the hands of whom? Um, well, just to, to follow with that, with the stories. I, I've seen in Thailand and in Laos and all these Theravada countries mm -hmm. where the, there are many positions of the Buddhas. Yeah. So with the hands like, like this, I think, uh -huh. like that, with the wand. Yeah. So I just wondered if, if it had to do with stories or... Uh, yeah, I, I don't know. I, I certainly do not know whether every hand position pertains to a particular story or episode from the Buddha's life. That I just don't know. Uh, certainly, the, the, perhaps the most classic one that runs across all the traditions is the earth-touching earth -touching gesture. That is classic. 
And that's the Buddha having achieved enlightenment, and he's calling upon the earth itself as witness that he's awakened, right? So that's classic. Uh, the, the protection mudra, I think it's like this. Do you, do you remember? I think it's like this protection mudra. Offering protection, right hand up, fingers touching. I believe that's protection. I'm sure this is turning the wheel of Dharma, the left and right. So like so, uh, turning the wheel of Dharma. And there are undoubtedly others, but those are some of the... That I don't know. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure there are many others. I'm, I'm really not an expert, so I know the ones that everybody knows. Yeah, pretty much that. Good. Anything else coming up? Let's see if this person has anything else cooking. In the Guru, yoga says the seven-line prayer, but there's no question. So I don't know. The foundation of all good qualities, in the foundation of all good qualities, it's a, a prayer. It seems to give a lot of importance to the three types of morality, but they're not taught very much. Um, yes and no. And that is, if, if, you're a, if you're receiving a Geshe training, if you go through formal monastic training, you'll certainly learn about the three types of ethics. If you, if you become, a, become a Kempo in the Kagyu Nyingma tradition, you'll certainly learn about the three types of ethics. My old friend, one of my oldest Dharma friends, Sangha Kondo, uh, has translated a text, a uh, medium-sized text, maybe 250 pages, on the three, the three whole dimensions of ethics of the Shravaka, of individual liberation, Bodhisattva, and Vajrayana. Uh, and it's a text, she translated the text, it's a text by Dujum Rinpoche. So I don't remember the title right now. She translated it maybe 15... What's that? Perfect Conduct, thank you. It's a good translation of a classic text, and that really covers those three in detail. Um, so they are taught, but it's one of the... I could go into a whole shtick here, which I won't, but um, it's part of the... How do you say? Buddhism in the modern world coming to the modern world was, imagine anyone but His Holiness or, or somebody of that stature. I mean, I think really, literally, His Holiness could come to a major city and the advertisement could be, His Holiness Dalai Lama is going to spend one afternoon in the Civic Auditorium in San Francisco and he's going to read the local telephone book. <laughs> and, and people will certainly come. I mean, they really will. It's going to be for their blessing, you know, because they want to be in His presence. So a person like that, he could teach pretty much anything he likes and people will come, right? Uh, for most Buddhist teachers, you'll have to come up with something better than a telephone book, but frankly, you have to come up with something better than ethics. Sad, but true. If almost anybody says, weekend, the great perfection, Dzogchen, <laughs> get people lining up, you know, or Vajrayana, or high this, high that, Vipassana, whatever it is, something really esoteric, something cool, good. But if you have a Lama coming to town, they say, this Lama is going to teach you the ten non-virtues. <laughs> oh, man, are people going to line up for that to go to the movies. <laughs> you know? It's the com commodification of Buddha Dharma in the modern world. I mean, you have to rent a hall. Now, in Tibet, this never happened. You never rent a hall. I, I've never heard of money ever being exchanged. When a lama, a lama will come to a monastery, he'll come to a temple, whatever, but renting? Renting? They say, are you, are you renting? You know, it'd be kind of like, I don't, I don't know what you're talking about. Um, 
Transportation fees? What, the yak needed more grass than there was on the ground already? <laughs> you know. and, so, and then accommodation? Well, of course, the Lama will stay in the monastery. And administration costs? Well, that's what we're supporting 6,000 monasteries for. You know, support the Lamas and the monks and so forth. So there are no fees, ever. Ever. There are no fees for anything. People would come. They would naturally make donations. Often, there would be the case, going back to earliest times, times of, of uh, Tison Detsen, time of Padmasambhava, Kamala Shila, and so forth, that um, there would be a patron. There would be a patron. This happens frequently. Someone who's quite wealthy, an aristocrat, a, a king, a prince, somebody with a lot of money, some wealthy businessman, uh, might come to a great lama, like a Dingu Kenzi Rinpoche, Sakitinzi Rinpoche, and said, I would like to sponsor a teaching. I'd like to sponsor a teaching. Would you please come? I will make all donations for you, and I'd also like to um, provide food and Tibetan tea for all the monks and all the ordained Sangha who come. And everybody else here on their own, but the ordained Sangha, I want to give everybody a gift. Um, and I'll take care of that. And would you will be willing to give teachings on the three principles of the path, or the parting from the four desires, or please give Avalokiteshvara empowerment, but I'd like to sponsor it. That would be very common. And then the word would go out, grapevine, and then monks, monks would come, nuns would come, but then, of course, a lot of lay people would come. Monks and nuns might do some offering if they had any. Often they wouldn't have anything to offer anyway. They'd be the recipients, but the lay people would come, and then they would offer whatever they can. Some couldn't offer anything, that'd be fine. Some would offer more they, if they could, that would be fine. So that's the way it was traditionally. And moreover, then, if the, lam, if, if the patron said, I would like to have you please come and give teachings on the three vows, the three vows, the, the vows of individual liberation, the bodhisattva vows, and the vajrayana vows, would you please do so? The lama would very likely say yes. And then the monks are all going to show up. The nuns will all show up. Serious practitioners of all sorts will show up. And so they didn't have to think, oh, gosh, we won't be able to break even. We won't be able to pay transportation costs. Uh, we won't be able to pay the auditorium fees. We won't be able to administrative fees. Oh, uh, can you find something else? Could you maybe teach something a bit that has more appeal? You know? Nowadays, it's just a sad fact. I mean, Dharma, Dharma centers, they have to pay their bills. They're pretty much running right on the edge anyway. And so if you invite a Lama in, and then you ask the Lama to give teachings and ethics, I would imagine, what would you say, maybe one-fourth as many people will show up? Maybe one-fourth? What are your chances of even breaking even? You know? So that's kind of too bad. Because then a person like this, and it's a perfectly reasonable statement, they're not taught anything. They're not taught. Well, that's because they don't sell. They don't sell. Yeah. So that's one of the, the major downsides of the commodification of Buddhism in the modern world. And... Um, as we, and again, we're still in, a, in the infancy, that is, Buddhism is a global phenomenon. It's not just in the West, it's in South America, it's in all over the place. Um, it's in its infancy. And as we mature and grow wiser in the, in the Dharma, then we'll be seeking teachings, not only ones that we find interesting and that are esoteric and profound and mind-boggling and so forth, but ones that we know are really, truly, truly of benefit and then ethics will play a more and more prominent role. Thus far, not that prominent, except for more quiet teachings that are, so people don't have to worry about money passing forth, back, back and forth. Okie dokie. So, 
So enjoy your weekend. I certainly will do my best to do so. And let's go have dinner. <laughs>